мной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. We all know that the Soviet Union was officially an atheist state. Religion was attacked, its practitioners repressed, and the tenets of belief were met with a constant ideological onslaught. But atheism in the Soviet Union wasn't just unbelief. It was a positive ideological system that tried to fill the empty spaces left by the sacred. So what then did atheism mean? How did its meaning change, especially as religious belief persisted? I turn to Victoria Smolkin for some answers. Victoria Smolkin is an associate professor of history at Wesleyan University, where she specializes in atheism and religion in the Soviet Union, religious politics and secularism, and the Soviet space program. She's the author of A Sacred Space is Never Empty, A History of Soviet Atheism, published by Princeton University Press. Here is Victoria Smolkin. So your book, uh, uh, Sacred Space is Never Empty, A History of Soviet Atheism, it looks at the problem of religion in the Soviet Union through atheism, which I think is a really interesting way to deal with it because most people have actually dealt with the issue of religion as such. So where does your book fall within how religion in the Soviet Union has been traditionally addressed? So I think that the main, the, the kind of point of departure for me with the book was this almost cliche that um, I imagine most of your listeners are familiar with, which is that, you know, communism was a religion or kind of quasi-religion or per se- perform the same functions as religion. And, you know, when I was in graduate school and started thinking about this and encountered that, um, that framework, Um, What surprised me was that, in fact, um, there hadn't really been studies of what communism actually did to perform those functions beyond a fairly limited um, amount of work on the early Soviet period. So... um, so the reason that I followed the the the, lay, the kind of the atheist narrative was because, um, above all, kind of nobody had looked at it before over time, looking beyond the kind of the early Soviet campaigns that um, that are the best known, you know, that are most the kind of militant atheist campaigns, and in terms of how religion had been looked at. Uh, traditionally, it's it's a kind of martyrology. It's a you know it's, most people have studied religion and for I think fairly obvious reasons that history and those studies have been histories of religious repression. And I think you know for for my purposes that didn't really answer the question of why it was that or whether a, uh, communism actually could 
and did, um, you know, whether it did replace religion. Um, you know, you can understand that religion became marginalized, but I don't think that necessarily um, answers whether that space that it had occupied was filled by something else. So that was my big question, was to see how that space that had ostensibly been freed of religion was filled by something other than religion, and in this case, atheism and, and more broadly communism. And um, what I found by looking at the entire Soviet period, by actually um, moving beyond um, you know, the early Soviet kind of efforts, uh, was that what it made clear was that it performed very different functions and had different meanings, um, atheism, over time. Um, and that, I think, speaks above all, and this is I where I end up in the book, to the fact that it was really dictated by political objectives uh, above all else, uh, that it was really uh, the, the role that it played um, either in um, supporting the, the communist ideology or in repressing religion um, that really determined its fate, how much resources it got. And so um, at times it just disappeared entirely because it was unneeded. So that to me was really interesting um, to kind of, uh, you know, to, to really see the political deployment of atheism um, rather than just kind of looking at it as an isolated and discrete phenomenon that has its own logic. So, so that's, that's where I think it um, makes a contribution, I hope. You know, it's interesting because atheism is kind of, you know, when I think of it, it's the absence of belief, right? This is, it's kind of the negation of faith, the negation of belief. But one of the things that I think you, you really hit on is that, and, and this goes to the title itself in, this, in the sense of, you know, you, a sacred space is, is never empty, that atheism f isn't the absence of belief in the Soviet context, but actually the creation of a new belief. So do you consider atheism in the Soviet context a kind of religion? Well, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm wary of, of, drawing that analogy directly because I think so much of this depends on how you define religion. Um, and one of the things that becomes very clear if you start studying religion is how uh, how flexible and problematic that definition is to the point of almost um, being difficult to find a definition that works across time and space, in my view. So, so I would say, um, you know, in, in the case of, of the Soviet Union, the, what they understood as atheism um, is quite different than the traditional... Um, assumptions, the kind of definition that you were talking about, right? The absence of belief. Because if they had uh, accepted that definition of atheism as unbelief, and if that had been the definition that they were working with and, what, and, and the kind of objective that they were striving for, then in fact, they had pretty much... Um, in some ways achieved that by, um, you know, by the 60s um, in that a lot of people didn't um, believe, they certainly were not theologically literate, um, and the practices, the religious practices that remained in people's lives largely were uh, connected with life cycle rites. So, you know, baptisms um, and funerals above all and marriages were, were reduced to, 
you know, to, to you know, three percent, five percent. So, so if they, if that, if it would, if it had just been about unbelief, then they could have just declared victory, you know, and moved on. And what's interesting to me is that they actually didn't um, find that. Uh, outcome satisfying and didn't move on, but in fact doubled down to uh, to create what they called atheist conviction. So for them, atheist conviction was a kind of positive set of beliefs um, that um, above all excluded other beliefs and uh, were kind of commitment to materialism and rationalism. And they also um, excluded the possibility of doing things that contravene those beliefs. For example, baptizing your child, right? Because if you had atheist conviction, you couldn't in good conscience as an atheist baptize your child because it was a nonsensical superstitious practice. So for them, they were really after this completely disciplined, convinced atheist um, position um, that would you know, that would allow people to have a kind of articulated vision of what atheism meant to them. It wasn't just the absence of something. It was very much a present and positive um, identity. Yeah, that, that, I mean, this is why I, I moved to this religion analogy, because it's the way you describe it seems to me based on certain inclusion of certain, a certain worldview. A certain ideology, maybe we could just call it an ideology, but but more importantly, the ex the exclusion of of other beliefs and ideas and practices, um, and and that's what's really like you said it, it, to to create this this worldview or this this consciousness that um, has certain principles uh, and excludes other principles. So I and fill it with positive meaning, I think is really crucial here. No, I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right in that it has to, you know, the exclusion, right, fighting against competing beliefs um, is really absolutely central to this. And I think that's, uh, in a way, that was atheism's primary function was to to kind of discipline and and exclude any competing worldviews and practices from the Soviet, from Soviet life. Um, so, so, and especially those that um, took place in the private sphere and in, um, inside a person, right? And, and, you know, what they called spiritual life, because those are much more difficult to discipline through the usual disciplinary channels, right? <laughs> through repression and so on. So, um, so from that perspective, yeah, absolutely. It, it performed those functions. Um, I guess my, my hesitation with calling that religion is that I think that you could equally talk about a lot of political positions in that way, right? And so, um, or, or other sorts of, of commitments that people feel intensely about and that they are willing to exclude, you know, uh, competing commitments in order to fully devote themselves. So, 
so I, I don't think that that's exclusive to religion. So, you know, you, you couldn't be, for example, right, a, a Bolshevik and a, you know, and a Menshevik at the same time, right? <laughs> so, yes, so, yes. so, like, you know, that, that was a position that excluded all alternative positions. Um, so, and I think, you know, that's true of a lot of political, um, you know, so I would be much more comfortable calling it, I guess, you know, calling it an ideology or a worldview, um, if, if those also included religion, religion, and, and, and other. Yeah, I, I see your point there. I mean, because it goes back to your, the, the, your statement about, well, it's really difficult to define religion. And if you, I guess, if you take it to that level, then it almost becomes nothing everything and nothing at the same time. That's exactly right. I mean, I think I think that, you know, when you kind of, you know, this was a, a project that took, you know, all told probably 10 years, right? And so for 10 years, like, I, I kind of gr tried to grapple with that analogy and think about whether and to what degree it was productive. Now, what I think is really important is ultimately, I don't come down and say, oh, it was or it wasn't a religion, because I, I think, um, I think, for all the reasons I've already said that that's um, you just kind of can go in circles and you don't ultimately arrive at a productive um, and clarifying position. But what I do think is really important here is um, that the that the Communist Party definitely saw itself in competition with religion and in competition with the church. So in terms of how they um, position themselves, the kinds of activities and, and, and practices that they engaged in, the kinds of questions that they tried to answer, that, those were the questions that they explicitly understood to be the questions that had been the traditional purview of religion. So from that perspective, you could say, yeah, they tried to replace religion, right? Now, yeah. you know, and they saw themselves very much in competition, so they would t keep statistics, you know, how many uh, religious baptisms, ha you know, uh, took place in each region versus how many socialist um, birth rituals, right? So th these would be things that were, you know, documented. And when they were working out these, um, you know, for example, these rituals, they and and producing socialist versions of baptisms, they would, um, you know, they would take the baptism as a model um, and then kind of. Um, take out all those things that they found to be problematic, right? A belief in the transcendent, any kind of supernatural reference, um, and make it more of a kind of folk, you know, folk, um, a hybrid of a folk tradition and a kind of uh, ideological, um, um, a kind of folklorized communist <laughs> um, uh, 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 ritual. When I did research on the Komsomol in the 20s, they had all of these attempts to, uh, and not very widespread, but they would pop up in the press every once in a while where they would, uh, you know, have uh, communist christenings where they would, you know, red christenings or red weddings or red funerals. And they tried to institute these kinds of practices amongst young people to, to fill, to provide an alternative to the pressure they were getting mostly from their parents to engage in certain um, religious practices and rituals. So let's let's go through the history of the Bolshevik approach towards religion. So beginning in the 19, after 1917, uh, what was uh, the Bolshevik approach to religion from Lenin to Stalin? Well, I think, you know, the Bolsheviks 
in the Communist Party, I guess, to kind of take it across, you know, when they stopped calling themselves Bolsheviks, um, they always saw religion as essentially three things. And those three things were as a kind of political phenomenon, it was an ideological phenomenon, and it was a spiritual or kind of cultural phenomenon. And, you know, these kind of three prongs, politics, ideology, and culture were the, uh, the ways in which they kind of tried to address and engage with it. Now, I think those three were in place at all times, but at different moments, different aspects were privileged. So in the early Soviet period, in my reading, um, really they were concerned above all with the political um, potential of religion to mobilize counter-revolution um, above all by, um, you know, by mobilizing local communities against um, collectivization, for example, or by mobilizing foreign powers, um, you know, who um, would be in communication uh, through the clergy with the church in exile. So all of, um, you know, all of the ways in which they found religion threatening, not all of the ways, but most of the ways in which they found religion to be a threat were to do with the ways that it could undermine Soviet power, Soviet political power. And as far as the kind of ideological and spiritual, they absolutely um, also address those things. For example, the ideological belief, right, um, uh, kind of trying to instill materialism. Um, this was, uh, I, I think, the most prominent example besides, you know, the kind of ubiquitous lectures about, you know, how miracles are false and can be explained through science, right, this kind of thing. Um, the two most um, obvious examples of trying to deal with religion as an ideological phenomenon were the attempt to kind of unmask religious relics and to show that, you know, for example, the bodies of saints had decomposed or had been replaced by um, uh, effigies or uh, by or, or were not there at all and therefore were just an attempt to deceive the masses. And then the second one that I would point to as kind of indicative of the approach was the, the building of the planetarium in um, in Moscow um, in the late 1920s, and the planetarium was really seen as this kind of theater of science and materialism and um, something that would kind of awe the visitor and show them how the world actually worked as opposed to how they believed it worked based on um, you know, the Bible or what the priests had told them or their superstitious backwardness. And um, so that, that was the kind of ideological prong, but that got far f less resources and attention than, you know, the, the political, which was repression and administrative regulation and essentially an effort to get religion out of politics and out of really even out of the public sphere. You know, so to essentially keep religion contained within the walls of religious institutions, within the walls of the church. And then the third, this, this kind of spiritual side, I would say that the, probably the, 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 the only real effort to deal with that, and it was, you know, episodic and haphazard and largely unsuccessful, was precisely this effort to... Um, to create these new rituals and to transform everyday life, um, so to cleanse kind of everyday life of superstitious practices, um, to replace religious rituals with socialist rituals or Bolshevik rituals, um, 
And, you know, a lot of these, as, as I'm sure you saw in the Komsomol coverage, were, um, you know, really they ended up just being a source for mockery. This great example um, that uh, the writer Zilfin Petrov, um, the satirist who wrote 12 Chairs, um, uh, described in the newspaper Pravda uh, in the 30s, and they talk about essentially this kind of factory uh, director uh, baptized or you know having a, a red christening, a red um, baptism for a baby, and he says you know everybody's just sitting there smoking dejectedly while he gives this political speech, and it's you know you know he. It, it's just basically embarrassing and boring. And then at the end, everybody just goes home and does what they were going to do anyway, which is baptize their child. Um, so, um, so, you know, there's a sense that they were essentially, you know, political and bureaucratic procedures that um, really failed to do a lot of, um, failed to create a kind of aesthetic and emotional experience that religious rituals had created. And so that I would say is the biggest um, lesson that they took away from the failure of that project is that, you know, that, that, that if you're going to create these rituals and if you hope for them to replace the people's traditional practices, they have to have a, a, a significant aesthetic and emotional component and they have to have some way of some some authenticity or seeming authenticity which is what they tried to achieve by connecting them with folk traditions and do you does this this is really interesting because you know as you said a few minutes ago by the 50s and 60s the war against religion in terms of like pushing it out of political and even public space is pretty much accomplished. So is the post-war attack on religion or, or the, the emphasis on atheism about creating this emotional and aesthetic relationship with atheism? Um, well, I would, I would just maybe amend that a little bit and say that really the political battle against religion had the goal of that, um, the, the subjugation of religion and, the, um, and you know, it's, it's marginalization in public life that had been really achieved by the end of the 1930s. Um, you know, most of the um, clergy were either in the gulag or um, in exile. Um, you know, most of most believers were um, in the, you know, those who were fervent and committed uh, were in the so-called catacomb church, were in the underground, um, and then the rest were fairly passive. Um, and and it, it was the mission had been accomplished to the degree that during the war, Stalin famously you know, brought religion back in, in fact, um, and, and created a kind of bureaucratic infrastructure after essentially destroying the church. Um, creating a, a new office that was called the, well, two offices, one for Russian Orthodoxy, the Council on the Affairs of the Russian Orthodox Church, and then the other for all the non-Orthodox groups, um, the Council for the Affairs of Religious Cults. And so he created essentially um, these state bureaucracies to run religious affairs because, in fact, he saw a use for religion now that it had been politically uh, neutralized um, that could actually serve serve the Soviet state, both um, abroad on the international arena, right? It could do significant foreign policy work for them and also at home. So religion not only, um, you know, not only 
was the problem solved, but actually there was a kind of religious revival in the post-war period. They were opening churches, um, um, you know, aggressively um, in, um, yeah, throughout the, the late 40s and 50s and all the way through um, the, through Khrushchev's rise to power, essentially in 1953-54. So it was when Khrushchev came to power that suddenly there were uh, a number of voices that said that, you know, this is obscene. Why do we have all these churches? Um, there's this great... Um, um, this great episode where Vladimir Bonchbruevich, who was an old Bolshevik and was kind of one of the godfathers of atheism and really was the, the only holdover, like the only kind of prominent holdover of militant atheism that survived the war and was remained kind of committed to the cause. In 1954, he starts actively petitioning um, uh, petitioning, you know, the party uh, to revive atheism and is saying, you know, I go to, you know, I went to Leningrad and, you know, what, what am I looking at? All, all I'm seeing when I walk through the city is churches being restored, you know, and this is, this is ridiculous. And when, you know, meanwhile, we can't even get the Museum of Religion um, uh, you know, there was the Museum of uh, the History of Religion. We can't even get it to be called the Museum of Atheism. So he changed the name to the Museum of Atheism, which he believed would be it was a, was a huge victory. Um, and and then, you know, the, the museum had been, you know, was in the Kazan Cathedral, which had been seriously damaged by during the war. And he said, you know, we can't even open it. Uh, properly because we can't get the resources to restore it, right? But meanwhile, the churches are being opened all over Leningrad. So there's this kind of, there was a sense in the 19, you know, in the mid-1950s that things had, you know, made no sense, right, from the ideological perspective. And um, he, um, he had successfully, to some degree, or I would say there was a convergence of his project, his athe commitment to atheism and uh, Khrushchev's vision of reviving communism and kind of what he called what he called building communism. So entering a new stage of Soviet modernity and um, the revival of atheism under Khrushchev was really under those auspices. He he very clearly said, you know, religion is no longer our political enemy and religious people are no longer political enemies or fifth columns inside the Soviet Union. They are misguided, they are ideologically um, wrong, right? They're backward and they need to be rescued through enlightenment and science, right? Not repressed. So, so there was a kind of recasting, right? Of religion and of the religious person um, so that you could both continue to say, you know, religion, the church is loyal to us. It's, you know, it's, we have, we don't have religious repression in the Soviet Union, right? That's the, that's the, 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 the key argument that needs to be made on the, on the international arena. Um, but at the same time, we have these people who believe in obscene and ridiculous things, right? And it would be better for everyone. And we can't kind of enter communism with a Soviet population that continues to believe in backward and ridiculous things. So everybody needs to work on enlightening the masses so that we, when we enter communism, enter it, you know, with the clarity of materialism. So, so that was, you know, in the, in the kind of Khrushchev era, that was the argument. Um, right. For, for reviving atheism. And in fact, atheism 
you know, whereas in the early Soviet period, when it was a political issue, it was called militant atheism. And the, and the militant was a very important part of, of the program. Um, they explicitly rejected militant atheism and re, reframed it as scientific atheism under Khrushchev. It's interesting. They had to be saved. Oh, yeah. I, well, that's exactly right. Right. So there's this, you know, it, it, there's a very, a very clear missionary component here. Right. Um, and and well, you know, I mean, the, the, especially if you, you know, in the book, I talk about um, one of the one of the most uh, interesting and revealing things for me when I was reading the documents. So I was I was working with the um you know, a good portion of the book is based on the archives of the so-called Institute of Scientific Atheism, which was uh, created in 1964 to kind of create a home for, for this new Soviet atheism um, and to kind of try to make sense of why they continue to fail at their objectives. And um, so this, this, the archives of this institute have these incredible transcripts of the, their meetings. Um, just hundreds and hundreds of pages of atheists discussing religion and trying to, um, you know, and, and thinking about what they could be doing better and why they, um, they're getting a lot of times um, counterproductive results. And so what they're saying a lot of the times is, you know, we can't compete with the priests. We don't have the training, right? A, we are completely illiterate in the Bible. So every time we face off in one of our lectures, you know, in the countryside with a Baptist, we look like fools, right? So, you know, and there's this great moment, actually, even um, when... Um, when uh, German Titov, the, the cosmonaut, is, is speaking in 1963 at a party, at a, at a meeting of the Central Committee about atheism. And he says, you know, you keep expecting us cosmonauts to be going around, you know, talking about how we didn't see God, right? But, but, but you know, but, and we keep getting questions from believers in the audience um, on our tours, but none of us have ever seen a Bible. So you need to get us all Bibles. <laughs> so he's going to asking for Bibles for cosmonauts so that they can kind of be more effective and literate when facing off with their opponents, right? So this is a complete inversion. And then the other thing they say that's fascinating, again, um, you know, because it's, again, kind of in line with this missionary aspect of atheism, is that, um, you know, they say, look, the priests are trained in homiletics, they're trained to, you know, to do pastoral work, they're trained to speak in front of an audience, whereas, you know, our lecturers are, are not, right? they're terrible, they're boring, they read from their notes, right, they have no charisma, and so they said, you know, we need to be trained the way the priests are trained, so that when we deliver our, you know, lecture slash sermon, people are actually compelled to listen. Right. So there's this recognition that they are the, of the in the kind of the two, of the two sides. They're the weaker party. You know, they're neither as knowledgeable nor as well trained. And um, and so they're always kind of coming up short when they actually face off against their ostensible opponent. I mean, this is what's so kind of it, it, it almost reaches the absurd in some way in the sense that um, they have this idea of putting forward this atheist ideology but in order to put it forward effectively they have to adopt the methods 
that they're trying to undermine <laughs> in a way. Oh, ab- ab- absolutely. Absolutely. They, I mean, and they make it so explicit. So there's this one moment where they're talking about the journal Science and Religion, which, again, was um, part of this, this Khrushchev era effort to, you know, to spread scientific atheism. So they finally, they create this journal Science and Religion. And there's this meeting in which they're talking about the journal and they say, you know, our journals are not attractive and they have really bad quality paper. And then they say, look at the watchtower from the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's so shiny. It's so beautiful. You know, we need to learn how to publish better journals because if the, you know, if the, if the Jehovah's Witnesses are publishing, you know, uh, kind of bright, beautiful, colorful covers, you know, and we're just publishing boring old, you know, um, uh, texts, then how could we ever hope to bring people over to our side? So, so they, I mean, they're very conscious of adopting those methods, but for them, the issue, I don't think they even see that as a problem because they're, you know, the methods are not the problem. The problem is the, the ideology in, in the service of which those methods are being deployed, right? So if they can deploy the same methods, you know, in order to reach, you know, in order to help a Soviet person reach atheism, they're perfectly content with that. One of the things I found interesting is your chapter on cosmonism and, and space exploration. How, how what role, and, and of course the role of these um, cosmonauts who are, you know, they, they go up into space, they don't find heaven, they don't see God, and they're asked to report those findings to the public. So what role did the space age play in, in, in imagining space exploration in, in the atheist mission? Well, I, I think that of all of the things that the party tried to do to, you know, spread scientific, so-called scientific atheism, the, you know, the the aspect of Soviet culture that had the greatest potential was the Soviet space race um, and the Soviet space program, which genuinely excited people, right? People were, were thrilled to see cosmonauts in person. And so they, um, you know, there was one cosmonaut in particular, Titov, who was uh, cosmonaut number two, who was actually quite happy to, um, you know, to, to participate in the atheist campaign. And he, um, he, had, he had actually made quite a scandal at the Seattle World's Fair um, because he, you know, he said, you know, that there was no, there was no, nothing, you know, transcendent in heaven and, you know, all of, uh, all of our achievements and our ability to go into space are the work of, you know, humanity and we don't need to, you know, any kind of external references. And then, of course, this elicited, you know, all sorts of, you know, outcry from the American public, which is exactly what it was meant to do, right? So, so then, you know, and then, and then, you know, even like Billy Graham responded, and then John, John Glenn, the American astronaut responded, right? There was this kind of like to do about a Soviet atheist cosmonaut. Um, So, so that, you know, that could do a lot to make atheism compelling, right? I mean, in a way, almost like as a, as a branding strategy, right? You attach it to something people already love and are excited about um but the thing is that that and uh, you know i talk about this in in the chapter in the book where i talk about the effort to 
to kind of use the space, uh, space achievements and cosmic enthusiasm in this way, um, is that as you know, they, they would do all sorts of things like, you know, send out, you know, they built a lot of planetariums, for example, right, and this would be a way to, uh, to kind of get the enthusiasm of Soviet people for space, um, to bring them into the planetarium and there you could deliver an atheist lecture, right, it's kind of <laughs> through the back door. And, um, and so, that, so they even had what so-called uh, mobile planetariums, um, and uh, mobile planetariums were buses that were uh, sent out from a stationary planetarium to collective farms. And these buses would, um, you know, because of course these collective farmers in rural areas far away from any center would, um, from any urban center would, you know, never get to a planetarium. So the planetarium came to them and they would organize a dance or they'd organize a theater show. And then afterwards they would let all the collective farmers look through the telescope and they would explain to them, you know, uh, how the world worked and how the, you know, how the cosmos is organized, right? So they were, this, this was a way, you know, and then of course, when you say, well, well, you know, our Soviet people have been to space, this gives it all the more, um, all the more kind of um, uh, effect. And, but what they didn't anticipate was that, you know, in fact, most people, uh, many people that they encountered, didn't really see a contradiction between, you know, their their belief in God and the fact that Soviet people had been to space. You know, they 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 could come up with all sorts of uh, narratives that um, w in which those two things were perfectly compatible. You know, God sent our Soviet people to space, <laughs> and so and so you know, or you know, God isn't you know isn't visible or God you know there was just they're they're basically in terms of somehow converting people to atheism it didn't actually have that effect people could love the the space program and cosmonauts um, and still retain their beliefs um, you know it, uh, without without much contradiction why do you th I mean this brings up something I just thought of and why do you think they took this binary approach rather than, say, incorporating religious belief into communism, like, you know, tapping into like the New Testament or the, the more good words of Jesus and things like this and, and have a softer, more inclusive approach? Oh, gosh, that's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a hard. Qu well, why? I mean, in a way, it's quite, you know, like the, the, the short answer is quite obvious, right? Because Lenin said so, and you couldn't have. I mean, you know, it's in the it's in the Leninist Party Charter that you could not be both a communist and a religious believer, and the two things were mutually exclusive. And in order to really fully embrace communism, you could not um, continue to hold backwards and misguided beliefs, and you also could not have split loyalties, right? What if the church told you to do one thing and the party told you to do another thing, right? There had to be a complete monopoly on, um, on people's convictions and on their um, allegiance. Um, so I think from that perspective, um, you know, th there was no real way in which they could incorporate, actually directly incorporate religion while still calling it religion. On the other hand, you could say, well, they did do that, right? They, they took, they made the moral code of the builders of communism, right? And the, right. the moral code of the builders of communism, you know, incorporates a lot of the, you know, the commandments. <laughs> so, you know, they, they basically 
were trying to counter this argument that atheism and communism were somehow immoral and that people who were atheists would, um, you know, were were not as, for example, good, you know, that, that, that they would be more likely to divorce, right? These were the kind of narratives that were out and about. And they were, and they said, no, in fact, you know, we can create a moral code um, and, uh, and, and communist morality and, and in fact, uh, enforce it. Um, and there's some good work on this, you know, and efforts to kind of enforce communist morality under Khrushchev. Um, and that was, I think, the, the effort to do precisely that, to kind of say, well, we're not just about, you know, subjugating the church or kind of repressing the priests. We're also about, um, you know, creating a kind of moral society. And we actually have a clear set of principles that we adhere to. Um, but in terms of, you know, I think for, I mean, if I, if I had to kind of, you know, just bring it down to its, to the, to its fundamentals, I think you couldn't bring in any competing authority. It wasn't about the actual content of the moral beliefs. It was who was issuing, uh, you know, the content, right? The, what, what institutions and texts were the authoritative sources of that content. Um, so, you know, you could, you, as long as the party was issuing it, you could have the moral code and it's no problem that it says the same, you know, in many of the same things as Christianity. But, um, but when you have a part, you know, the kind of theological tenets and the church issuing, you know, uh, precepts for behavior, that's a very different thing. The Soviet state was never successful in eradicating religious belief particularly on a personal level, even religious practices um, and rituals. So how did people express or practice their religion or their spirituality or their faith in the 1970s and 80s? Well, I think that this is actually something, you know, that, that we can only give, a, 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 you know, an incomplete answer to a really a you know, a, an anecdotal answer because there hasn't been a great deal of work yet that really systematically examines the kinds of practices. Um, although there's been great, um, you know, especially uh, anthropological studies of some of this. Um, but so far, they've really focused on specific areas and specific communities, and there hasn't been an overarching kind of theorized um, uh, analysis of late Soviet religiosity. So what you can say is that, um, you know, people continued, a lot of people continued to, um, to, to, to practice rituals, right? Even when those rituals were not um, within, not conducted by religious um, clergy or in, in the church. For example, people would do home baptisms. You know, that that was a common practice. And, um, you know, there would be a, a person, a local person who had some kind of religious authority based on, you know, either their uh, personal charisma or religious knowledge that they had, um, you know, or because they were from a family of, you know, local religious um leaders right so there there could be you know a host of different things a lot of times this was older women that were kind of repositories of religious knowledge and belief um and practices that could be you know that that could draw a bridge across um generations when those traditions had been lost so there was that kind of thing in the in the 70s so that's that's in terms of rituals um 
you know, funerals, a lot of funerals continue to be religious. Um, you know, people continue to, you know, believe in supernatural and transcendent things. And I think um, that really brings us to the other side of this, which is that what you see in the 60s and uh, the late 60s, especially, and then the 70s and 80s is this kind of uh, pluralization, a kind of growing um, diversity of, of, of spirit, I would say spiritual communities um, and belief and a kind of eclecticism um, in, in the kinds of beliefs that people had. Um, and, you know, the, the Soviet, the kind of the so if Soviet atheists would refer to this as, you know, mysticism, um, but, you know, believing in, you know, astrology or believing or, or for example, Hare Krishna's appeared around this time um, or, or kind of going off and, and um, forming a community around a religious elder. Um, you know, this was a quite popular uh, practice, especially among intelligentsia in the 70s. Um, so, so there were all sorts of different ways in which what you could kind of describe as religion showed up. Um, and the other thing, and I, I talk about this in the book and the, in the last, especially in the last chapter where I talk about um, young people in the in the 60s, well, from the late 60s through the 80s, kind of turning to religion, or at least the perception among the party that they were turning to religion. Um, you know, there 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 were all these movements. Um, well, there was there was a movement, for example, to restore um, churches, um, not necessarily as religious spaces, but as cultural artifacts, um, but nevertheless sacred spaces. Um, you know, or, you know, people started wearing crosses. Um, a lot of um, literature and films started um, including religious elements, um, even though it was in the guise of, you know, a kind of historical, again, a historical or a cultural artifact. For example, showing a wedding ritual, right, in a film, um, a wedding ritual from the 19th century. So, um, you know, there were ways in which religion appeared, but um, and, you know, but I think what, what you do, what you can say is that there, you know, what was lost, um, and, and there are a number of scholars who've, who've talked about this, um, is religious literacy, right? Because, and, and then a lot of traditions were lost because they were not effectively handed down over generations, not just because the Soviet Union was, was repressive, but also because of the the huge social and demographic changes of the late Soviet period, meaning people leaving their villages or leaving where, their homes and moving to the city and just breaking ties with with their local communities and with you know the older generations um, and living a different you know kind of embracing a different way of life. I think that that had as much impact as any kind of policy, um, and that you also see interestingly in the West as well. That's one of the, 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 in your introduction, you spoke about the different trajectories of the literature, and one of them is a, a kind of modernization, secularization narrative where, you know, urbanization uh, pretty much in most places around the world is accompanied by a certain secularization. The increase of use of technology and communication networks uh, increases as a secular a world, you know, the, the embrace of a secular worldview. So in this context, what happens to the space of the sacred? Well, I, I think, 
you know, the main thing that really transforms across, across space, let's say across even the Iron Curtain, is the attitude not so much to religious beliefs or practices, but the attitudes to religious authority. Um, and of course, that would then have an impact on beliefs and practices. But um, I think for me, one of the, the most uh, productive books that I read outside of my immediate field, outside of the Soviet or Russian studies, um, was Hugh McLeod's book uh, uh, called The Religious Crisis of the 1960s, where he talks about England. And the processes that he's describing, you know, taking place in Great Britain, um, you know, they enlarge, I mean, they, they really echo uh, a lot of the things that you see happening in the Soviet Union. And that is to say, you know, young, uh, first of all, people, um, the family unit kind of closing in on the nuclear family, meaning that grandparents are no longer kind of uh, in close proximity, right, with, uh, with, with grandchildren necessarily. And so the religious knowledge is not handed down over generations. Women going to work, again, that will impact um, religious transmission or the transmission of, of religious knowledge. Um, you know, people intermarrying across across confessions, right, across religious backgrounds, which then, of course, poses this question of, you know, whose religion are we going to reproduce? And a lot of times no, the answer is no one's, right? They're the kind of, and then, you know, just the rise of leisure culture. So, for example, are you going to send your child to Bible school on Sunday or are you going to send them to soccer, right? <laughs> this, th this really impacts... Um, you know, the, you know, how people spend, decide to spend their time is, is very different. So I think that, you know, the space of the sacred, it's hard to, you know, you're, you're, you see kind of two things happening. On the one hand, this kind of, dis, uh, you know, diffusion um, and uh, in terms of um, an individualization. So people start, um, you know, de defining the sacred for themselves, and they don't rely on the, ex you know, on, on either any external text or external authority to define that for them. And I think, you know, you could you see the cultural revolution of the 60s in that way. Um, right. So I think that's, that's one of the things, or it, you know, it just the community is small. So maybe there's a charismatic leader, and they have, um, you know, but they, they see their, um, you know, their commitment to that community as a personal choice, right? Not something that was determined for them because they were born into the Catholic Church, for example. So so I think that's that's one place the sacred goes is this kind of individualization of beliefs and these kind of narratives that people, um, you know, produce for themselves, you know, of what, what, you know, what is my personal God, right? God is, um, right. you know, that I think you still see that, right? That's still, that's still a way that people engage with the spiritual. Um, but then I think, um, you know, the other thing that should be noted is that that process is kind of, you know, at its height in the 60s and 70s. And then by the late 70s and the 80s, you see a resurgence of religious authority. And so, in fact, you're actually, you know, it go this kind of individualization, um, you know, becomes a dominant framework for a period of time. But then, you know, you see the, you know, I, I mean, I, th I think this is most clear in, for example, in Poland, right? Um, you know, where the, the rise of, the election of a Polish pope, you know, people go um, 
you know, they, they continue to find spiritual meaning in the church. Um, and, and they, you know, they kind of, um, begin to organize their political and public lives with that in mind as part of it, right? So for example, in so for solidarity, the church was a really important um, component part, right? Um, uh, of the political movement. So so it's not that it dis I don't wanna give this impression that suddenly the sacred is completely transformed and disappears, but I think um, it, it goes into these two separate tracks. You know, one is this kind of resurgence of authority and um, and those people who continue to turn to religious institutions and texts. Um, and you see this in the U.S., for example, as well, right, with the rise of the, yeah. um, of, of the religious right in the late 1970s and 80s. And then on the other hand, this kind of spiritualization, right, the kind of spiritual but not religious identity um, that emerges in the, in the 60s and kind of continues to be a way that people organize their lives. Um, you know, this this is actually really interesting um, because, you know, famously for the 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 thousand year anniversary of the founding of the Orthodox Church, or at least the conversion of, of Russia to ortho to Christianity in, in 1988, it's the thousand year anniversary. And now in, you know, Russia today, in the last 20 years or so, you've had a revival a rehabilitation of the Orthodox Church and a revival, at least many people say, of the Orthodox belief. How do you place this revival within this glo more global context of religious revival in general? After, particularly in the Russian case, after you know, seventy plus years of atheism. Yeah. Well, see, I, the, I, again, this is a this is a I think a really different difficult question to answer categorically, right? To kind of give a, a one answer that holds true. So maybe I can just say a couple of things. First of all, we don't actually have a great understanding yet of the nature of this revival. Um, what we know is that um, what we know is that there is uh, that the Russian Orthodox Church is is has become much more present in Russian public life. Um, in fact, has become central to Russian public life in the last um, couple decades. We also know that people identify as Orthodox much more explicitly, right? But what does that mean in terms of their spirituality and religious beliefs? Again, we don't have the we don't have the data to really say definitively what we have you know we know for example, you know most people go to church on Easter. Um, how many people? go to church every Sunday. This is a single digits from what we know. Yeah, 3%, right? I mean, this is not, this is not, um, you know, this is not exactly the kind of religiosity that would be satisfying for the church, interestingly, right? Like the church, um, the church would see this as, as something that was a problem, right? That people need to be better churched and, and become more literate and practice their faith more uh, regularly and in a more disciplined way. So on the one hand, as a social phenomenon, I think it's very hard to say much about the religious revival other than that religious identity becomes has become much more important to people, but in a way that as a as a way of connecting to the national identity, I don't think you can really see it as separate from that. Um, yeah. And but then in terms of in terms of the church and the role of the church, 
what I think is interesting, and this is kind of, this is where I end my book. Well, I, I start my book really with that, with that millennia, celebration of the millennium of um, the Christianization of Rus. And so in 1988, and I put, you know, the, the introduction of the book poses this question of why after all of, you know, several decades of, of atheism, does the party really Gorbachev personally decide to um, allow the Russian Orthodox Church back into Soviet public life, which is to say to sanction the millennium as, as a national celebration. Because up until his meeting with the patriarch in the spring of 1988, the millennium was co consistently depicted as a purely religious holiday, right? That, that secular authorities and Soviet society did not have to participate in. Um, or even acknowledge as, as particularly significant. And suddenly in 1988, Gorbachev meets with the patriarch and says, you know, this is a, a central part of our history. You know, believers are Soviet patriots and so on and so forth. And so um, the, the church really enters into Russian or Soviet, initially Soviet and then post-Soviet Russian life before the Soviet Union collapses. And 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 really um from that moment begins to play a very um well in a way you could say it begins to play explicitly a role that it had played implicitly already for decades which is as a kind of buttress to the political regime um right. so what's interesting to me is why um you know the that first of all, that Gorbachev also at the same moment abandons atheism, which is to say, he says, you know, the the, the state is no longer going to be funding atheism. Um, you know, whereas, you know, that, that we are no longer going to be conducting atheist work, you know, that the party is still an atheist institution, but it's no longer going to be getting funds to do atheist propaganda. Um, so the question is, you know, why do they make the switch? And I have um, in the last chapter, I mean, the book kind of ends on this note where, you know, what you have at the end of the Soviet period and, and really in 1985 is this kind of consensus that atheism has failed so colossally to win people over and to become an, any kind of authority for people, either politically or ideologically. Um, and that that means that religion had continued to be rec recognized authority socially and moreover had uh, gained ground from the perspective of the party over the course of the 70s and 80s in its kind of social standing in Soviet society for all the reasons that we kind of talked about. Um, and you get this sense, I mean, and they, they basically say this, um, you know, pretty explicitly that, okay, on the one hand, we have this, this, you know, very feeble cast of atheists who are very bad at their job and who have failed to really achieve any results. On the other hand, we have this, you know, this patriotic church that continues to volunteer itself to help us solve social problems. And it moreover has an army of ready priests to do it, who are actually trained to do this work. I mean, they basically like, you know, that that is the way that that um, shift is framed. And, you know, so so there's this moment in which they recognize that ideologically atheism is a dead end, whereas orthodoxy can be deployed 
to buttress the state in a way that, um, you know, by, by the late 1980s, communism was no longer able to do. So, so I think that in a, it, what, what's fascinating to me, and I don't think people really, you know, people haven't really talked about this as much, is that the kind of current model of church-state relations in Russia was already you know, in a way kind of established before the Soviet Union collapsed, because what you see with the celebration during the millennium is the rise of the state as the kind of center of Russian political life, right? The celebration is, you know, it's not just about the introduction of Christianity into the so-called, you know, Russian world, but it's about the establishment, it's considered to be the point of origin of the Russian state. And and so in a way right like we before this we don't talk about the state in the soviet period we talk about the party and the state is this kind of essentially an administrative apparatus to the party and then suddenly with that transition you know you have the abandonment of atheism and you have the kind of marginalization of the party from the political arena and this kind of emergence of the state as a sacred institution that has a millennial history i mean i think that's a huge transition that then continues in a way that is the beginning of this narrative that ends with you know vladimir putin putting the uh the statue of vladimir uh the great you know the 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 um, Prince Vladimir, who introduced Christianity into Kievan Rus, um, in you know, right outside the Kremlin. I mean, I think that narrative is already there in 1988. That was Victoria Smolkin, an associate professor of history at Wesleyan University, where she specializes in atheism and religion in the Soviet Union, religious politics and secularism, and the Soviet space program. She's the author of A Sacred Space is Never Empty. A History of Soviet Atheism, published by Princeton University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. <laughs>